You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for March 2010. Today's episode is titled, Fathers Release Potential. Today's culture is marked by broken homes, generally the result of a man and woman who are unhappy with their relationship and one or both feel entitled to personal happiness. Most couples assume there will be little impact on their children. This presupposition is clearly self-serving and incorrect. Divorce disrupts the divinely ordained context for raising children. Both a mother and father are needed to prepare children for their divinely ordained life purpose. In particular, it is the role of the father to call out a child's destiny. The pattern of independence and or divorce in fathers is often reproduced in children, which limits the children's potential. An organization achieves greatness when the people in the organization are each in their right place and working in the fullness of their potential. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Power of Discipling Fathers. Well, I want to welcome all of you again to the Executive Forum. The Executive Forum is designed to articulate the reality of biblical worldview in the workplace and a very fundamental reality that you can never have enduring, lasting success in the workplace except using biblical principles. And that makes a lot of sense when you step back and think about it. Uh, Genesis 1.1 gives us a very profound reality. It says, in the beginning, God. So that means everything starts with God. So when you try to live life, no matter whether you profess to know Christ or not, it doesn't matter who you are, you try to live life without God and His principles, it will not go well with you. If you want to live well in this universe, you have to play by His rules. He made it. He made all the rules. We're playing in His playground. So if we're going to play here well, we've got to follow His rules. Most of us don't even know His rules because we've never studied them. Most of us grew up, at least in this, this day and time, you grew up in homes where you maybe, maybe you had some Bible training, maybe you didn't. Maybe you went to church, maybe you didn't. Maybe you went to a school that taught the Bible, maybe you didn't. But even if you went to a school that taught the Bible, even if you went to church, even if you grew up in a Christian home where the Bible was emphasized, you probably didn't have strong teaching on biblical principles of work. In fact, in my years of doing this, I rarely find anybody that, that really has had that kind of training. And I, I've had some people to, to say they've had that kind of training, but when I have a chance to quiz them, I discover their definition and mine are very different. I'm talking about some really purposeful, intentional training in how to do business biblically. Most of us don't know those things. So what I try to do with the Executive Forum is to show you through stories that are largely lost or largely uh, untold how biblical principles has led to a lot of the success that we enjoy today. I mean, you stop and think about it. We're in this beautiful room on a very cold day. Is anybody cold here today? I mean, really cold. I mean, you might be a little <laughs> chilly, but I mean, really cold. It's probably 73, 4 degrees in here, and nobody's really uncomfortable. It's very, outside that, that window there, it's probably maybe 27, 28 degrees. Okay? And we're eating this wonderful food in a, a very lit, a nice area where you, you can see each other, you can take notes, you can just enjoy a wonderful conversation. We're all nicely dressed. Where do all these things come from? Well, they've come from people, men and women, who have practiced biblical principles at some level. And largely, we don't hear this echoed. We just kind of take it for granted. We don't think about how these things happen. 
You cannot develop anything in this life, anything well, except when you follow God's principles. So what we want to do with the Executive Forum is continue the tradition of trying to share with you great stories, largely lost stories or untold stories about how men and women have done incredible things at the workplace, brought glory to God, and blessed you and me. So our story today begins with the birth of John in 1874. John was born uh, in upper New York State to a Scotch-Irish family. They were very poor. His father was a a part-time farmer and a part-time lumberjack. Um, His father just really had all kinds of challenges in business. In fact, one time he bought a grove of trees to mine the lumber, and then there was a flood that wiped out the grove of trees. So it just seemed like that no matter what his father tried, he just didn't have hardly any success at all. Well, notwithstanding all of the challenges of John's father, John's father was a godly man. He never lost faith in God. He always taught his children the principles of the Word of God to the best of his ability. Now, John's father was a simple man. He was not highly trained or highly educated. He was not somebody imparting great theological truths. He was somebody who was imparting simple truths as he understood them from the Word of God. He, he taught his son values, the importance of work, the importance of persistence, the importance of believing that God is good. That, so he maintained optimism in his life and taught his son to be optimistic. John was the youngest child. He was the baby of the family. Uh, he had four older sisters. He was the only son. And so through most of his life, to some degree, he helped to care for his family, even as a child. He had some education growing up, went to some schools. Finally, he decided when he was a teenager, you know, I need, uh, I need to really get trained to go do something. So he went to a school, a one-year business school in upstate New York, and he learned accounting. So when he got out of that school, he graduated. He went to work as an accountant, as a bookkeeper. That did not last long. From what I can tell, John's personality was probably a DI personality, those of you familiar with the DISC profile. And DIs don't generally make great accountants. Okay? So John, John experienced that reality. And so uh, he very quickly lost that job. And so now he's, he's jobless. He's looking for another work. So he finds an opportunity to sell organs and pianos to farmers. Now, you can just kind of imagine what that might be like trying to sell organs and pianos to farmers. That's a very difficult chore because most of the farmers don't have any money. You know, they live uh, basically by borrowing money on the future crop. When the crop comes in, they go pay off that, that debt and they go borrow money on the next crop. So to buy an organ or a piano was a challenging thing, so that didn't go well. So then he got the bright idea to sell sewing machines. Now, that would be more practical, right? I mean, at least you need a sewing machine. You can do something with it. You know, organs and pianos, you make music, and it's nice and everything, but, you know, you can live without music, but I need clothes. So he figured that that would be a good thing to do, so he starts selling sewing machines. And he was having a little bit of success. And one day he had a great sale, and he just had to celebrate. So he drives his rig. He had a horse and, horse and wagon. He drives his rig with all of his, uh, his samples, his product samples in his rig. He drives it down to a, a roadside saloon, and he goes in, and he has a little bit too much to drink. And he kind of loses track of time. And he's partying and celebrating this, this day that where he sold some sewing machines, thinking he is a, a great salesman. And then when he comes out at the end of the day, his rig is gone. 
And so now he has to go back to his employer and explain uh, how he lost his rig, which included the samples. Well, the employer was most unhappy. In fact, they were so unhappy they fired him, and they dunned him for the cost of those product samples that he lost. So here he is out of work again. So you can see the pattern is beginning to get set in here. He's having a hard time finding a way to support himself and to help his family. So finally, he, uh, he gets uh, hired by a gentleman to, do, to sell investments. They were selling stock in the Buffalo Savings and Loan. And this looked like a pretty good deal. Now, I don't know. I couldn't find out a lot about this. This, this may have been an early Ponzi scheme before Ponzi came along. Because in the end, what happened is the guy that hired him was a crook. And so John had a little success initially, enough to kind of you know, begin to feel like, okay, this is going to work. And so he decided to take a little bit of his money and make an investment. So he bought a butcher shop. He thought, this is really good. You know, a butcher shop, people need meat. And this way that, you know, I can be in a business that will be needed no matter what's going on. And this could be an investment. I'll hire somebody to run the shop. Well, it was a great idea. He, hire, he, he buys, the, uh, buys the butcher shop. He sets it up. But, you know, when you start a business, it takes time to get it going. Well, in the meantime, he's trying to kind of work two jobs, run the butcher shop and sell the stock and the, and the savings alone. Well, eventually the reality of his partner, the man that hired him, came out. The man left town, took a lot of the commissions that were due John, and all of a sudden John again is out of work, and with a butcher shop it's not making money yet. So he's forced into selling the butcher shop. And when he did that, he finally found somebody to buy it. He had bought a cash register for this butcher shop. And back then, you know, you generally bought cash registers on installment plans. So you might have you might have paid fifty dollars down and you know ten dollars a month for two or three years, whatever. So he sold the shop, and then what he does is uh, he, he needs to go down to the local store where he bought the cash register and transfer the installment payments. So he goes and does that, and as he does that, he realizes, okay, now I don't have the butcher shop, now I don't have a job. But, you know, this cash register business looks kind of interesting. So he goes back to the, the company, and the company is called Cash. That was the name of the company. And he talks, talks to a guy there uh, by the name of Jack. His name is Jack Range. He says, Jack, uh, I'm 22 years old. I'm eager. Hey, hire me. I'll be a salesman for you. I know how to sell. I sold sewing machines. I sold organs and pianos. You know, I sold investments. I can sell. Well, Jack wasn't very persuaded by it, but John was persistent, another great characteristic that his father taught him. And so finally he said, okay, all right, John, come on, I'll, I'll teach you to sell. So he brings John on, and he sends him out with a, with a wagon and a cash register on the back and says, okay, go sell it. So John starts driving down the streets of Buffalo, this is Buffalo, New York, and calling on all the merchants there to sell this cash, cash register. Well, the problem was, that John really didn't know how to sell a cash register. So for about two weeks, he does this, and he has no sales. He comes in one day, and Jack says, okay, Jack's the manager. He says, how are you doing? He said, well, I got several very close. Jack hit the roof. He says, I don't want to hear close. I don't care about close. I want sales. He reamed him up one side, down the other. In fact, John was sitting there saying, as soon as he stops talking, I'm going to quit. So... Anyway, as soon as Jack seemed to be quit talking, Jack changed. It's like all of a sudden he morphed. He was all mad, and now he's saying, look, John, 
I know this is difficult. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go on these sales calls with you, and we are going to win, and we're going to lose together. So let's get loaded up and go. And so they loaded up the cash register, and they started going down the street calling on merchants. Before the end of the day, they had sold that cash register. And so John watched Jack do it. And then Jack did it again. John watched Jack do it. This went on several times, and finally Jack turns to John and says, John, now you do it. I'm going to watch you do it. And so that went on several times, and pretty soon Jack saw that John was getting the hang of it. John could sell cash registers. So that started John off, launched him into a really a professional sales career. He found somebody that would train him and mentor him, that would disciple him in how to sell. So he did did very well. This was about 1896. So about 1900, he's four years into this. He is soared to the top of the salesman in the cash company. So this came to the note of uh, some of the executives at corporate headquarters. So uh, they needed an, an, an agency manager for the Rochester office. And so they couldn't find anybody that was more effective at selling cash registers than John. So they said, John, we want you to run the Rochester agency. So he's moved to Rochester, and he runs, his, runs that agency for about three years. Then in 1903, after having great success in Rochester, he's seven years into this career. Things are going really well for him for the first time in his life. He gets a, a call. Believe it or not, they had telephones back then. He gets a call from home office in Dayton, Ohio, and he said, we want you to come to headquarters. We want to talk to you. Well, now you can imagine um, how that might, might have felt to you. Okay, wait a minute. I, I thought I was doing really good. Now I got the home office calling me and bringing me in. Uh, this may not be good. Well, it turned out it was good. But John didn't know that as he's traveling by train to Dayton, which probably took a day or two. So he's kind of in agony on that trip. But he gets there, and they're very complimentary. In fact, he meets the CEO of the, of the company. The CEO of the company is also named John. His name is John Patterson. So we'll just call him Patterson so we won't get John and Patterson confused here. So Patterson says, you know, we've been watching you, John, and you're really doing well. We really are impressed. And um, we have a special project, and we think you're just the guy to do it. John says, okay, what is it? He said, well, here's the deal. What we want to do is we want to have we want to have a trust around the cash register business. Now, back in those days, a trust is different from what it is today. So let me just explain to you what a trust was. A trust in those days was effectively a monopoly. And the mindset back then was monopolies are good. Now, to us, we probably reacted and said, oh, that's not good. Well, let me tell you how they, could, they, they thought about it. The way they looked at monopolies is a monopoly is a business where one company dominates the industry and can charge enough money to where they can continually develop new product, they can service their customer well, and the industry is well served. And so that's how they viewed a monopoly. They didn't view it as anti-competitive. They viewed it as a way to be sure that we really do have a healthy industry. Now, we know that the Sherman Antitrust Law was passed in 1890, which was, which was against the non-competitive practices of monopolies. And so even though there was laws in place against this, many people were still practicing the trust concept. And they didn't view it as wrong. They viewed it as a healthy way to do business. And we could debate that all day, but the point is that was what they considered to be a good strategy. So, so Patterson said, John, we want you to set up a company, a used cash register company. 
And you're going to be, basically, you don't have to make any money because we're going to subsidize you. And what your job is is to go into a city and to basically destroy the used cash register business because the used cash register business is destroying our business. What's happening is instead of buying new cash registers, people are buying refurbished cash registers. We need to get rid of that. And the only way to get rid of it is we've got to get rid of the competition. So we want you to go and do that. So you'll go to, from city to city, and you'll stay there for six months or eight months or whatever until you've, you basically have knocked out the competition. Now, the way they knocked out the competition was not drive them out of business. They drove them to sell. They made it so miserable for them that the competitor said, you know, I, this is not worthwhile to me. I'm not making any money. And you're, you know, I can't compete with you. And so then, you know, cash would then buy the business. So they absorbed, they bought all these little bitty mom and pop businesses that were in the used cash register business. Well, that worked. Took him about four years, and he pretty well annihilated the competition up in the northeastern part of the United States. And cash had a monopoly up there. So they had what they wanted. Everybody's happy. They bring John back into corporate headquarters. They make him... Uh, an assistant sales manager, then they promote him to sales manager in 1910. Everything is going great. And then one day in February of 1913, they get a knock on the door. And the knock is from the U.S. Attorney General's office. And the U.S. Attorney General says, guys, what you've done here is illegal. You know, I know you think it's just good business, but it's not. It's illegal, and here's the law you've broken. And we are filing an indictment against your company and 30 of your key managers. And it's not just a civil indictment, it's a criminal indictment. We're going to send you to jail, guys. So that started the lawsuit that uh, about nine months later went to trial. And uh, in the early part of 1913, these men were all convicted, including John, of violating the Sherman Antitrust Act. And they were sentenced to one year in prison. Now, not only was John convicted, but Patterson was, too, the CEO. So what you have here now is a very devastating situation to the company. They obviously appeal, and they're waiting for the appeal to go through. So all the men are out on, on, uh, on bail while this is happening. About six months later, Patterson, who could be a fickle kind of guy, decided he needed to get rid of this, this blight on the company. All these people that had been indicted and convicted, other than himself... You know, they need to go. So he began to fire all of these executives that had been loyal and helped him build this company for all these years and terminate it and do various means. What he did with John, John was the sales manager. John's leading the sales meeting in November of 1913, and it's one of these rah-rah meetings. And Patterson just gets up in the middle of the meeting, and as the report goes, he turns around, he turns his back to John and starts talking to the audience and totally ignoring John. John knew that it was over. That was effectively a termination. So here he is, terminated at uh, nearly 40 years of age. Just gotten married, by the way. In April of that year, he married Jeanette. By the way, he said Jeanette was his greatest sales job ever, you know, which is probably true. He had married Jeanette. Jeanette had immediately gotten pregnant, so she was due in the early part of 1914. And so here you have a young man, 40 years old, who, um, you know, with a young wife and a baby on the way, he had just lost his job. And this man had learned, by virtue of the 17 years he had been with cash, he had learned how to spend money. He had learned how to live well. He liked nice clothes. He liked 
nice homes. He liked uh, nice food. You know, he, he liked all these niceties, so he didn't save a lot of money. He spent most of his money. So here he is, out of work, no money. He's not financeable for two reasons, one of which he's not had any success being in business for himself, and two, he's under a jail sentence, okay? And who wants to hire somebody that's getting ready to go to jail? So what is this guy supposed to do? How does he go forward? What happens? Well, that's going to be your discussion question. So let me read it to you here. Okay. John was a loyal employee, blindly loyal. For more than four years, he helped Cash eliminate competition. John didn't know that his employer's tactics were illegal. In many ways, John was a very naive man, but they were illegal. He was one of 30 cash managers indicted by the federal government. All were convicted and sentenced to one year in prison. While waiting for the appeal process, Cash's CEO, Patterson, turned on his fellow defendants and terminated all, including John, who, by the way, John had arguably been Cash's favorite. Think about that. At age 40, John was without work, faced a jail term, had few assets, had no history of success as an entrepreneur, and a new wife who was expecting her first child. So what should John do? John was incredibly wounded by this experience. Incredibly wounded. Uh, crushed. He felt like he was truly, unjustly condemned. So this, this went deep within him. He spent the rest of his life trying to demonstrate that he was what he called a straight arrow. He was determined that whatever he did with the rest of his life, he's 40 years old, however long he lived, it was going to be straight arrow. We're going to follow biblical principles. We're going to be people of integrity, people of truth. We're going to treat people right. We're not going to leave anybody an opportunity to accuse us of any wrongdoing. So that, that was a huge lesson he took away. But the real key here was something that you guys kind of hinted at, and that was the relationship. John had a relationship from Buffalo, and this relationship in Buffalo knew a guy in New York City by the name of Charles Flint. Now, Charles Flint was kind of a crusty old guy. He was an older guy, and he was a, uh, he was a master of the trusts. He loved trusts. In fact, over his career, he probably put together about 24 trusts. That's 24 monopolies in all kinds of things, from, from uh, you know, linens to rubber to, you know, all kinds of products that he could find. And so one of the things he got into was he got into time clocks. And he got into uh, uh, scales. Now, back then, scales were a new thing. Because if you needed to weigh something and charge by the pound, uh, how would you do that? You know, it would be nice to have one machine that you could put the merchandise on. It would weigh it, and then it would compute the price. Well, that was what the scales were back then. That was a, a kind of a, a new product that was coming on the market. So uh, Flint had bought... Bought into the scale business, and he did basically a roll-up. You know, that's what we call today a roll-up, you know, where you go and roll up all the little bitty companies into one big company. Well, that's what he did. He, with a scale business, he put about eight or ten of these things together into what, what was called Dayton Scale. And so that was, that was one company he owned. And then he owned this time recording business, which that was all about recording time in fact, factories, which we all know what they are. You go in. And you stamp your card, it stamps when you go in, stamps when you go out, so it records how much time you spend at the plant. And you get paid based on that. So that was a new technology. So we had two different 
uh, monopolies going in two different industries. And it would, would it surprise you to know that Flint wasn't doing very well with either one of these? And the reason for it is Flint was a financial engineer. He was not an operations guy. And he didn't have an operations guy. So he was real good at, at raising money, you know, borrowing money and raising capital and all that and putting things together. But he, he had no idea how to integrate acquisitions and how to really streamline, take advantage of efficiencies and how to really make these organizations work well. He was just clueless. He just kind of stumbled along and did these things. And finally, the worst trusts he had were the time clock and the scales. They were just a disaster. And so typical of financial engineers, when you got two disasters, what do you decide to do? Yeah, let's put them together. Yeah, put them together. Maybe we can make something good out of too bad, right? So that was his brilliant idea. So we'll put them together. We'll, and he said, we will call this is business information. Because that's what it is, business information. In fact, hey, I know a guy up in Washington. He's got another company, and this company does tabulating stuff. Now, this was Henry Holleris' company. Henry Holleris was a Ph.D. engineer from Germany that had come to the United States, and he had gone to work at the Census Department in 1880. And most of you probably know that the United States is required to take a census every decade. And back then, it was manually done. It took... Ten years to do the census. So literally, they did the census, went through the process, started over, did another one. Well, Henry's sitting there watching all this, saying, man, this is very laborious how we're doing it. And they started talking and brainstorming and thinking, you know, there's got to be a way we could do this, you know, automate this. So Henry said, well, gee, I'm an engineer. I think I know how to solve this problem. So he develops this tabulating machine. Basically, it's designed around a card. And every person has a card, and on that card is all the demographics of that person. And then all you have to do is run the card through this machine, and the machine calculates, it tabulates all the various stats from the cards, and it adds them all up. So he introduced that to the Census Department in 1890. They looked at it kind of like, are you serious? Well, believe it or not, they said, okay, we'll give it a shot. They did the census in three years. And they said, wow, man, this is good. So that emboldened Henry to set up a company, which he did. Of course, Henry's an engineer doesn't know how to run a company. So... He's got this struggling company. It's been in existence. You know, it started in the 1890s, and by about 1911, when Flint is in his dilemma, Henry's in a dilemma. And so he's saying, you know, Henry, i got these two lousy trusts over here, and I'm going to try to put them together and make a better trust, and maybe you ought to be part of it too. And that way we'll have three different emphasis in this, this trust. You know, we'll do tabulating, we'll do scales, you know, and do, we'll do a recording. In fact, I've got a great name for it. We'll call it CTR, Computing Tabulating Recording. That's what we'll call it. What an ingenious name. That really excited everybody. Anyway, he talks Henry into this. He buys Henry's company, puts them all together, and now he's got even a bigger mess. Okay? And he still has nobody to run it. But he hits this call from his buddy in Buffalo. He says, look, i got this guy, John. He's really a pretty good guy. He's working for, for cash. And Cash let him go for no good reason other than Patterson just got mad at all the people that got indicted with him. So I think you ought to talk to John. So John goes to New York City and meets with Flint. Over a period of about two or three months, they talked. And um, they got far enough along to where, where Flint brought the board in. Now, see, CTR was a public company. No, it was a publicly held company. So you got this board. This board is looking at, at John and saying, you're going to jail. Why in the world will we hire you? And Flint basically says, look, guys, I don't have a clue how to run CTR. I've proven that. And you don't know how to run it either. We've got to find somebody that does. This guy, you know, was, was second in command under Patterson. 
Patterson's got one of the best companies in the country. I think we ought to give this guy a shot. So finally, he, you know, the board still didn't buy that. So finally, he just ignored the board, and he just hired, he hired John. Okay? I know none of you would do that, but Flint did that. So he ignores the board. He hires John. So John walks in in May of 1914 to his first day, first day of work. In fact, his first day of work was on the 4th, which was the Monday, I guess. And uh, the first thing that happened is the controller came in to tell him he was being docked for three days of pay because he didn't show up on Friday. He showed up on Monday. So that was how he started out his first day at work at CTR. It, didn't, it was kind of inauspicious. Now, now, you understand, John knows nothing about this business because John has been in the cash register business. He didn't know anything about time clocks, about scales, about tabulating equipment, nothing. And so what does he do? Well... First of all, he takes stock of what he's got there. He realizes he's got a highly inefficient company loaded with debt, and he notices that their payables are beginning to get longer and longer and longer because they're losing money like crazy. He realizes this company is fixing to sink. It may already be sunk, and I just don't even know it. So he goes into a, a, a tremendous learning curve that culminates really about six months later when he has a sales meeting. Now, these sales guys, you know, they don't know what to think of this guy. This guy's a Looney Tune guy. You know, what crazy guy. He's fixing to go to jail, and he's, he's our leader. In fact, they know that he might go to jail, so they don't even call him president. They call him general manager. They wouldn't even give him that title because they're, you know, they're concerned about the implications of that. So anyway, John, John meets with the sales guys. Now, the management style of that day was kind of the tyrant style. It's kind of like, I'm the boss, you're the subordinate, you do what I say, period, end of story. Is that a good description of a tyrant? Okay. You know, they weren't interested in listening to anything. Well, John walks into the sales meeting. Now, he's been involved all in operations up to now, reorganizing, you know, eliminating assets, uh, you know, trying to get rid of debt where he could, just streamline the organization, get efficient, trying to get the thing where it would work. And so now he's meeting with the sales guys. The sales guys are very, very skeptical of this guy. So John walks up to the podium and says, guys, uh, I want you to know I don't have, I don't have any understanding at all about how to sell your products. None. So I need you to tell me how we need to sell them. Well, you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody say, are you for real? You're asking input from us? You're not up there like a General George Washington directing everything? He said, no, I don't know. I need you to tell me. What John did at that point is he demonstrated that he was a servant leader. He demonstrated that I'm here to help you do your job. You're not here to serve me. I'm here to serve you. And so that's, that's what turned the sales force around. When they saw they truly had a man that was going to support them, a man that was going to encourage them, a man that was going to fight for them and help them, get them what they need, and, and when they fall down, he's there to pick them up. He was taking all those lessons that Jack Range put into him, and he was applying those now in CTR. And so the company began to grow. It turned around. It began to get profitable. They began to pay off debt. They began to move forward. And things began to look good. Things began to look positive. Then 1920 came along. Sales were good. They're solidly in the black. And, and John's thinking, hey, we really need to expand this business. And so he gears up. Gears up for a 40% growth. Well, guess what happened in 21 and 22? Does anybody remember what happened in 21 22? Got a recession. Big-time recession. They had a 30% shrinkage after they had geared up for this growth. 
And so now he's back into a turmoil again and a crisis. And so he's, he's hustling and scrambling, and he has to lay off people. He has to cut salaries. He has to do some really difficult things. And in the midst of really looking hard at the business again, he realizes that the scale business was just not a good business. It was just not going anywhere. It had pretty much maxed out what he was going to do. There really wasn't much growth potential. So he made plans to sell scale. They called scale. That's what they called it, the scale business. And so he began to move, move toward the other two businesses, time clocks or, or, or recorders, which, or the, uh, the tabulators, which one it was going to be. So he went back and forth, back and forth, looking at those. He finally concluded that the tabulating business had the potential. That's where things were really going to grow. That's where things were really going to move forward. And so as he looked at that, he says, you know, we've got we've to sell scale. We've got to phase away from recording. We've got to focus on tabulating. And then he said, you know, we've got to get rid of this name. This CTR name is a terrible name. So he had already, back in the, about 1917, they had already expanded into some international business. They'd gone into Canada and to South America to take their products. And so he said, you know, what I need to do is I need to have one name for everything. See, he called all the companies that were outside the United States, he called that international business machines. He said, you know, that's probably a pretty good name. Why don't I just call the whole thing International Business Machines? And so that's how Tom Watson, Thomas John Watson, built International Business Machines. The story that probably is mostly untold and difficult to find because most of us, all we hear about is what happened after 1922 and 23. We don't hear about all that went in to 1922 and 23. There's another key element to this story. In 1914, when, when, when Watson was beginning to lead the company, the main plant for the recording business was in Endicott. And Endicott was also the home of Johnson Endicott. Who knows what Johnson Endicott is? It's a shoe business. I bet everybody in this room at some point in your life has had a Johnson Endicott shoe. You may not have known it, but you have, because they've been around a long time. They're the... They're the 800-pound gorilla, and they were in, in 1914. So when, when, when Watson gets on the job early on, he meets George Johnson. And that was another influence in his life and arguably the most biblical influence in his life. So far, he's been influenced by his father, who taught him great values. He's been influenced by Jack Range, who taught him how to sell. He's been influenced by John Patterson, who taught him how to run a business. At least many of Patterson's traits were good. Some of his traits were not good, but he learned how to build an organization through Patterson. And he'd been influenced uh, by, by Flint. And the way Flint influenced him is he believed in him. He had faith in him. When nobody else would give him a job, Flint gave him a job, gave him a chance. And finally, the fifth guy is George Johnson. Now, George Johnson was unique because George Johnson loved people. In fact, one writer I I read said, George Johnson taught Thomas Watson how to love. When they first met each other, the relationship was very formal and very stiff and stilted. Johnson has this big, humongous business there. He's the dominant dominant player in the the labor market there in Endicott. And, And CTR is just a little bitty, small operation. And, you know, just really almost a shadow. You know, in the shadow of Johnson. 
But Johnson, you know, met Watson. He extended his stuff to him, got to know him. Watson figured out real quickly that Johnson's standards there were very high. For example, here's what Johnson did. Johnson built houses for his workers and gave them to him at, at gave, or sold them at cost. Imagine that, your employer building you a house and selling it to your cost. Okay? Johnson built a golf course for his employees, cost them a dollar a year to play golf, all they want. Okay? He built parks. He put rides in the parks. He instituted the eight-hour workday. He instituted profit-sharing. He had free medical, free legal. You hear what's going on here? Here's Johnson, a man that's showing how to really treat people. Now, Watson wasn't doing any of this stuff. He was basically doing what everybody else was doing in those days, treating people like they were slaves. Beat them up, work them as hard as you can, and as soon as you can, you know, get rid of them. There was no sense of really how to bless them and serve them. Johnson showed Watson how to treat people. And the thing that really turned Watson's in in favor of Johnson is when he saw the unions try to come in and unionize Johnson's company. The union standards were below Johnson's. The people looked at the union and said, are you kidding us? You want us to lower our standards to go be a union? Is that what you want? The unions had no prayer, no hope of unionizing Johnson. When Watson saw that, he says, IBM will not be unionized. We will do what we have to do to be sure that we have great benefits, great career paths, great training for our people. And so it was George Johnson that taught him the value of people and how to really bless people and honor people. You see, the, the, the story of Thomas Watson is the story of discipleship. It's the story of fathering. He had five key fathers in his life. There is no way that he would have done what he had done without these fathers sowing into him. And this is the way God made the universe to work. This is a biblical principle. It's, we need fathers to sow into us to release the potential that's in us. Some of you were talking about Tiger Woods earlier. And notwithstanding his recent character issues, you know, the, one of the reasons that he has exceeded as well as he had is his father. Incredible father. Well, Thomas John Watson Sr. had five incredible fathers. One natural father, four spiritual fathers. See, and that's very critical that we understand that. And by the way, Tom Watson did a lot of other things too, right? He was a great servant leader. And you might find it interesting to know that he used the biblical principle C4 to hire people. Does that surprise you? I don't know how he learned the principle. I couldn't find that in my research. He may have learned it by studying Scripture. He may have learned it just through pragmatically, you know, looking at it. But there's a record of a meeting that occurred uh, where Watson was teaching his management philosophy to his management team. And as you read that record, what you see is he lays out C4. And what he starts out with, he says this. He says, the most important thing is character. If you don't have great character, you will never realize your potential. He says, I don't care how much skill you have. If you don't have great character, you're not working for us, period, end of story. It was a no-brainer. It's a knockout. You don't have good character, you're not working here. That's the first thing. That's The second thing he said is you've got to love what you do. If you don't love what you do, you won't do it well. That's the passion. That's the calling. The third thing is a skill. And he recognized, he learned from his spiritual fathers, particularly Jack Range, 
that you have to train people. Jack Range spent all that time training Thomas Watson, teaching him how to sell. Personally taking his time, his energy, taking away from what he could be producing himself to help this young man learn how to sell. So Thomas Watson was committed all his life to training skill in people. And finally, the, the commissioning, the fourth element, that's set by management. And he said, management is here to serve the worker. He is the one that began to articulate the flat organizational structure way before we did in modern times. He began to do it because he realized the power of servant leadership. So you see, I have all these biblical principles at work in Thomas Watson's life. And that's why he had the success that he had. He was an incredible man. There's a whole lot more to the story, but we don't have time. But this, this man right here is a great picture of what it is to walk in biblical truth and be released to the potential that God's put in you. May, you. may you experience the power of fathers in your life. If you don't have and you don't know who the fathers are in your life, may God give you the grace to see them and embrace what they have to teach you. And may that release the potential of Jesus in your life in Jesus' name.